Well, good morning, ladies. I know we um, just spent some really good quality time in prayer, but let me just pray one more time for us before we begin. Heavenly Father, we commit our time together now to you, and um, we pray that you prepare our hearts. May our minds and thoughts not wander, but may we open the Bible today, and, um, and as we do that, we pray that we would hear your voice, not mine, but, but yours, Lord. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work, um, opening our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your word. And may we all come humbly, eager, and ready to hear what you want um, to show us in your word this morning. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Corruption, sin, rebellion. What a way to describe religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. We saw in the previous chapters how these religious leaders confronted Jesus, challenging him, rejecting him, trying to trip him up, trap him, and shame him. Yet they fail. In the end, in the temple, Jesus challenges and questions them, and with wise responses, he silences them all. We heard in chapter 22, verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And now in chapter 23, Jesus now confronts them. His last public sermon, a sermon where we'll see that he doesn't hold back anything. He sharply rebukes these leaders, giving them stern warnings. He condemns them. He pronounces judgment on them. These scribes and Pharisees were part of the religious leaders of Israel. They were to teach the scriptures and lead people closer to God. But instead, they were false teachers whose doctrine was all wrong and whose behavior, practices, and motives were nothing but self-righteous repelling people to have a relationship to, with God. We'll divide this chapter into three sections. Verses 1 to 12, where Jesus addresses the crowds and the disciples. He'll be exposing the true character of the religious leaders. And then in verses 13 to 36, the seven woes. Jesus turns to the religious leaders and directly addresses them full on. He not only addresses them, but he pronounces God's judgment on them. And then verses 37 to 39, we will see Jesus is brokenhearted, and he laments over Jerusalem. As Jesus reveals the genuine character of these religious leaders to the Jewish people, we need to say to ourselves, what might this mean for us? I mentioned three words at the beginning, corruption, sin, rebellion. Do we not struggle with that too? We have the same weaknesses. We have the same sinful hearts now today, just as the religious leaders did back then. So as we hear Jesus' stern warnings about them and to them, we need to be thinking about and looking at what that means for us today. Let's read verses 1 to 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, 
but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is talking to the crowds and to the disciples about the scribes and the Pharisees. He exposes them for who they really are, hypocrites. We'll see later that Jesus comes right out and calls them to their face, you hypocrites. The definition of hypocrites in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is a person who puts on a false appearance of virtue or religion, a person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. And the word hypocrisy is derived from the Greek term for actor, literally one who wears a mask. Actors who are pretending or putting on a show. In other words, someone who pretends to be what he is not, acting differently from what they're really thinking. And these religious leaders were claiming to believe something, but acting in a different manner. Yet Jesus says in verses 2 and 3, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you. They sit on Moses' seat. These leaders had authority to teach people on behalf of God. They were teaching what Moses had taught and were preaching in the synagogues. In fact, some synagogues have a special decorative seat called the Seat of Moses on a raised platform. And those men sitting there were to be respected because they were teaching by Moses' authority. Those in authority should be given respect and honor. But then Jesus goes on to say, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. So yes, respect and honor should be paid to these religious leaders and teachers, but then he warns the crowds and disciples not to imitate them, for they are hypocrites. They say one thing, and they do another. So yes, do as they do, but don't do as they do. Sorry, do as they say, but don't do as they do. They are pretenders, putting on a show. They don't practice what they preach. They're teaching the scriptures. They appear to be devoted to God and his word, but they don't walk in obedience to the scriptures. They are unfair. They're putting burdens on others with a ton of man-made rules and regulations that are difficult to follow. They do all things for the wrong reasons, to be seen by others, to be noticed, approved by others, to look good, to be respected and praised. In verses 5 to 7, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Phylacteries were little leather boxes that were filled with rolled up scripture, and these boxes were strapped to their foreheads and around their wrists. 
In Deuteronomy, Israel was told to love God and keep his commandments, and in doing so, they were told to bind his words as a sign on their hand and in between their eyes. But instead of taking these words figuratively, they took them literally. The word of God should be a part of our daily life in what we think and do and say, but they took it literally, wearing God's word on their foreheads and on their hands. But the bigger the phylactery, the bigger the box, the more spiritual they looked. And their fringes or tassels were long. In Numbers 15, 37 to 41, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of glue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to war after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. The tassels were supposed to be a reminder of his commandments and to obey them. But the religious leaders made their tassels long. And the reason? basically to impress others, to make themselves look great. Wrong reasons and wrong motives all together. So here they were, showing off their clothing, wearing scripture, sitting in the best seats in the synagogue, looking holy, loving the fact that they were being called rabbi, loving the recognition of being a somebody. Yet what were their heart motives? To love the Lord, their God, with all their heart, soul, and mind? No, definitely not. Their motives were entirely selfish. They wanted human approval. They wanted standing ovations. It was all about themselves, how great they looked, how important they were, how godly they must have seemed. All these things were just puffing them up more and more, exploding with pride. They loved themselves with all their heart, soul, and mind. Now what about us? Certainly we don't do this, or do we? Are we deceived or misled? Can we get caught up by things where we might want to be seen by others, to be noticed, approved by others? We want to look great, to be respected and praised, like giving to those in need, praying and fasting. Well, these are all wonderful things, but only if they're from the heart. But if they're not, and if we're only doing them for others to see how great we are, then this warning is for us too. Do we make sure others know what and how much we give to the needy? Or is that between us and the Lord? When we pray, are our prayers focused on Christ or on ourselves? Do we put ourselves higher than others because we might come dressed with our Sunday best as opposed to some who come to church with ripped jeans and tattered hair? Do we feel superior to others because we have a certain position in the church? A flattering title, perhaps deacon, director, teacher? Do these titles give us special privileges or a status that others might not have? It's not a sin to have these positions or to be gifted in certain areas as in teaching, leading, or directing. But if we put all these things first in our life, loving the titles and the recognition and seeking the applause of man or woman, sin creeps in, pride grows, our ego takes over and puffs us up. Titles are not important and we shouldn't strive for it. 
Instead, the honor should be going to God first. In verse 9, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. We only have one father in heaven, God the Father. We are not to give that name to anyone else. But it's not speaking about our earthly paternal fathers, our dads. It's speaking about those titles in in a religious setting. And verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So if we're humbled, we will be exalted. If we're proud, we will be humbled. We are to humble ourselves. We are not to exalt ourselves, think ourselves greater than others, and be boastful, prideful, pretending to be someone we're not. No, the greatest among you shall be your servant. We are to serve others. It's not about us. What is going on in our hearts? Are we listening to his voice and his word and following him humbly while serving others and not ourselves? That's a question that we can honestly only answer ourselves. We now move on to the next section. And remember, Jesus was just speaking to the crowds and disciples, and now Jesus singles out the scribes and Pharisees, and speaks directly to them. The seven woes. Here the word um, woe means an impending judgment, a divine judgment. So woe, watch out, oh no. It was a special word that caught your attention and you knew a heated warning was coming. Seven woes where Jesus condemns the religious leaders, exposing their sin and pronouncing judgment on them. Jesus calls them out for who they are. We'll hear him call them hypocrites, blind guides, fools, serpents, brood of vipers, harsh yet justifiable names for men who we will see rejected God, rejected his son, and led others astray. Let's read verses 13 to 15. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, excuse me, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, or in some of your Bibles it might say convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So here are the first two woes. Woe, watch out, you hypocrites. They followed the law, but they denied Christ. They denied the truth. They rejected Christ. They denied the need for repentance, for salvation by grace. They were self-righteous. They were concerned with good works and with impressing people. And in doing so, they also prevented others from believing the gospel. They prevented others from entering the kingdom of heaven. The religious leaders led others away from God, and both were equally lost. False teachers plus a false faith equals only one thing, a path of destruction, a path leading to hell. These two woes can be a warning for us too. Watch for false teachers. Watch for those that want or try to lead us astray, for those who focus on wrong things who focus on traditions or works, on how they feel things should be in the church, 
what they say you should dress like, how they feel your kids should behave in a church pew, voicing their own musical preferences, making traditions most important above the mission of Christ. If you look good, if you do good, that's all that matters. No, we need to be discerning to the behavior and teachings of others. Watch that they are not dishonoring Christ, making sure that his word is being opened up, spoken, taught, and at work in those who believe. We must be wary of those who have prideful attitudes, whose motives are selfish or destructive, who are controversial and cause strife and discord, and yes, even within the church. These are not the characteristics of Christ, and if we're not careful, we could get pulled into their thinking, their teachings, and be pulled away from our relationship with Christ. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not the righteousness of man, God's righteousness. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, living a life characterized by his righteousness, then you will be saved by his grace. Woe number three, verses 16 to 22. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you blind guides, Jesus says. And we need to really think about that for a second. If you've ever traveled on a sightseeing trip where there's a tour guide leading you, some of their responsibilities include learning the names and faces of those in the group. They keep checking the number of people in the group so as not to lose anyone or leave anyone behind. They're explaining emergency procedures and pointing out where the exits are and the guide is there to describe and point out places of interest and perhaps even driving the bus or boat if they needed to. But how would you feel if you found out that your guide is blind? Not only would that be strange, but it would be scary, knowing that they could lead you into a dangerous situation. How could they drive the bus? How could they know if they've left you behind? They can't see you or their surroundings, yet they're trying to lead you. Blind guides, blind fools, blind men. Jesus exposes the religious leaders for who they really are. They can't see the truth themselves. They reject God and his message. Their vision is distorted, so how can they lead others? These Pharisees placed greater importance to oaths sworn by gold over the temple to oaths sworn by offerings over the temple, over the altar. And if we remember in Matthew 5, Jesus says, do not swear an oath at all. Basically, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But they valued earthly things over spiritual ones. And what do we consider valuable? What do we place a greater importance on? Where do we spend our money? On things to impress other people? 
Where do we spend our time? Are we spending our time wisely or are we wasting our time? We must be careful not to follow blind guides who can lead us into danger away from Christ. And we need to be careful not to be blinded ourselves, misguiding others in their spiritual walk. Woe number four, verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tie the mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Again, he calls them hypocrites and blind guides. The Pharisees were applying the law of Moses when it came to tithing, but they also decided to make a big deal of small things like tithing right down to spices and herbs, little mint leaves and dill. Oh, how great that made them look. But where was justice, mercy, and faithfulness? They neglected that. In the Mosaic law, it was unclean to ingest any insects of any kind. So they would put a cloth over their drink and strain it just in case there were any tiny little bugs in their glass. They didn't want to contaminate their wine and ingest anything unclean or impure. Yet Jesus says, you blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So basically you're going through all this trouble, straining these little insects, but you swallow a giant camel, a camel that was considered ceremonial unclean. Again, they're focusing on the little unimportant things, like showing off how holy they are by tithing little mint leaves, but not focusing on the far more important things in life, like showing justice, mercy, faithfulness. Their motives and hearts were all wrong. Hypocrites, pretenders, all for a show, uh, all for a show to appear righteous by doing good and observing rules. On to woe number five, verses 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. I had my sister over one Sunday afternoon after church, and she thought me, she would help me um, by setting the table as I warmed up the soup and the buns. Dinner's ready, we say grace, we ate, we laughed, we um, had great conversation. And it was time to clear the table and I started to load the dishwasher. And she looked at me really freaked out and she's like, why are you putting those in the dishwasher? The dishwasher's dirty? I said, yes, the dishwasher is dirty. Oh no, she cried. She says, that's where I got the soup bowls from. <laughs> yes, um, they looked clean on the outside, but inside, I can't begin to tell you how we all felt. <laughs> we thought we enjoyed the soup, but we weren't too sure after that. Outwardly, the scribes and Pharisees appeared spiritual, holy. They looked good and clean. That was important because they wanted to be approved by people. Inwardly, they were pretenders. They were filthy, full of corruption, greed, sin, hearts filled with hypocrisy. What's our cup like? 
Let's not focus on the outside, on our appearance, on our selfish acts, on our selfish actions of doing good by helping others or serving for hours in a ministry. Let's not look for recognition or try to impress someone. Let's not look for rewards or big thank yous from others. Instead, let's focus on the inside, focus on our hearts. Let's focus on having humble hearts, servant hearts, ones that are honoring and pleasing the Lord. Woe number six, verses 27 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you are also outwardly so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, an outward and inward comparison, this time a little more graphic. Um, grave sites and tombs were painted or they were whitewashed with lime, and some were even decorated beautiful. They were just beautiful um, tombs. Well, at least on the outside, they were beautiful, but on the inside, they were very unclean. Dead, rotting bodies, decay, stench. Outwardly, they appear righteous. Inwardly, they were spiritually dead. Liars, cheaters, rebels, full of hypocrisy, pretending to be somebody they're not. The final woe, number seven, verses 29 to 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you built the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah and the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So here the scribes and Pharisees are acknowledging their ancestors. They were descendants of those who murdered the prophets, yet they thought they were better than their ancestors. If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. We're better than them. We're better than that. We wouldn't have killed anyone. But Jesus knows their evil hearts. He tells them that they will follow in their father's footsteps. They will kill just as their fathers did. We saw back in chapter 3 where John the Baptist calls them brood of vipers. There was no evidence of good fruit in their lives. They had no love of the scriptures. They had no remorse for their sin. There was no evidence of changed hearts. They wouldn't repent. They rejected all that was spoken about the kingdom of heaven, about the Messiah. They wanted nothing to do with any of this. And later we'll see in chapter 26 that these men will soon be scheming to murder, to arrest and murder Jesus. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Again, being called brood of vipers, but this time by Jesus. 
Jesus, the divine judge, telling them that because of their unbelief and their actions, they will be judged. They will be declared guilty. They will be punished and sentenced to hell. Not only them, but all of Israel will be judged. All those who willingly follow them. We've now come to the final section, verses 37 to 39, where we see that Jesus is brokenhearted and he laments over Jerusalem. Let's read that. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See your houses left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is brokenhearted. Jerusalem, a city that kills the prophets and stones the messengers. Oh, how he wanted to protect the people, how he wanted to put them under his wings. He loved them, but they weren't willing to receive his protection. They rejected the prophets, the messengers. They rejected God. They rejected the Messiah. Your house is left to you desolate. Your house, your temple. Notice it's not God's temple anymore, but your temple. It's left deserted and empty. Jesus is leaving them. This was his last time in the temple. God is leaving them. What a sad time. They are being abandoned by God. God's protection is gone. Emptiness. How could a righteous God dwell among unbelieving people who over and over again refused to honor him? And so judgment fell on Jerusalem. They will not see Jesus again until he returns. Jesus recites from Psalm 118.26, telling them that they will not see him again until they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The same words we saw in chapter 21 when the crowd shouted in praise when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. When Jesus comes to Israel again, he will be the judge and the people of Israel will finally recognize and acknowledge his true position as their king. Do we recognize and acknowledge him today? He is King Jesus who knows us, who loves us and wants to protect us. He wants to shelter us under his wings. Listen to the words from the hymn, Under His Wings, a beautiful picture of God's care and protection. Under his wings I'm safely abiding, though the night deepens and tempests are wild. Still I can trust him, I know he will keep me. He has redeemed me and I am his child. Under his wings, what a refuge in sorrow, how the heart yearningly turns to his rest. Often when earth has no balm for my healing, there I find comfort and there I find rest. Under his wings, what a precious enjoyment, there will I hide till life's trials are o'er. Sheltered, protected, no evil can harm me. Resting in Jesus, I'm safe evermore. Under his wings, under his wings, who from his love can sever? Under his wings, my soul shall abide, safely abide forever. God's faithful promises to shield and protect us. Jesus loves and cares for us. He died for us. He so longs to hide us under his wings. 
even in our weaknesses, even in our failures, even when we feel we don't deserve it. Will you receive his love and care and desire to take refuge and be shielded by his protection? A place where we can safely abide forever. May we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not the righteousness of man. May we search and check the conditions of our hearts and truly be humble and glory in the grace of God and in the cross. And as we end, let me leave you with um, these verses that are found in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. The Apostle Paul wrote, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithful promises that no matter how we may fail you, you are there to pick us up, to forgive us, and you are ready to shield and protect us. We thank you that we can find safety and rest in you, and we pray that you help us to draw us near to you, to listen to your voice and to follow you. Pray that you fill us with the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ and fill our hearts with love that we might um, really worship you with our life and with everything. Not just with the things or the deeds we do, but with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. Lord, we pray that you guard our hearts, and we, may we be your humble servants. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.